Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Thanks for supporting the Fable and Folly Network. Here's another show we know you'll love. I got this really strange email last night. I need to see what's going on with this mystery file. Hey, it's a map of a town called Ocean Bay. Someone sent these images to you for a reason. I'm so lost right now. When was the last time you chose a direction and followed it? I'm going to Ocean Bay. We don't get many tourists this time of year. Ocean Bay is a friendly town, but we're not that friendly. I never sent you an email. I don't even know you. And why exactly are you here? The map is the reason we're here. Maps help when you're lost. Do you know what a trap street is? Trap streets aren't real. They don't exist. Don't trust anyone unless they give you a reason to trust them. I, I think he's dead. How could so much damage happen to a human body in such a short period of time? What the hell is going on here? From the creators of Strange Air, this is Trap Street. So maps can have secrets. Yes, maps can have secrets. Follow and hear new episodes of Trap Street anywhere you listen to podcasts. Hi, I am Tanya Ransom, the creator and executive producer of Nightlight, a horror podcast featuring creepy tales written by Black writers from all over the world. And today I'm here with Todd Sullivan, the author of Wheels and Deals. Todd, how are you? I'm doing very well this morning. How are you doing? I'm doing good. It's evening here and morning there. Can you tell our listeners where you live? Yeah, I'm currently in Seoul, South Korea. I've been here for about 14 years. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Okay. So listeners, if you have not listened to Wheels and Deals from last week, make sure that you go back and listen to that. Because if you don't, we're going to be talking about some spoilery things here. And unless you're okay with spoilers, we don't want to spoil it for you. So go back and listen. Come back here. The episode will still be here when you get back, I promise. But Todd, I find it really interesting, you know, one, that when I first read the story that it was set overseas, you know, because I'm here in the United States, obviously, most of the submissions I get are from writers that are here in the United States, a few that are um, from the UK, and a few from Africa. I have never gotten a submission from Japan or Korea <laughs> or any any um, any of that part of the world. So that was one of the first things that really stood out to me um, about this story. And it was really obvious to me early on that you had at least lived there or, you know, had been there for an extended amount of time to understand some of the nuances of the culture there. Like you really helped bring this world that I've never been to to life for me. So I'm curious, like how you came up with the premise and, you know, why you decided to set it there in Korea rather than, you know, maybe where you grew up, for instance. Well, uh, so I decided to set it in Korea because like my writing style basically follows me where I go. So I'm originally from New Orleans and everything I wrote took place in New Orleans. 
Then I moved to Atlanta for 10 years and everything on road to place in Atlanta. Then I was in New York for three years and everything on road to place in New York. And now I'm in Korea for 14 years. And so everything I write takes place in Korea. So that's basically how my writing style works. And I came up with the idea. It's actually a part of a much larger world, like a horror world that I've been writing for probably the past like eight, nine years. And so this is just one aspect of this kind of tapestry of what tapestry of horror that I'm kind of writing. And the story itself, like the idea was that back when I was writing these stories maybe about eight years ago, some of the stories that I wrote kind of ended violently, like there was kind of a violent confrontation at the end. That would kind of resolve the, the issue that was going on in the story. And so I wanted to write a story that wasn't resolved through violence, it was resolved in a different way, uh, something that's more subtle. And I wrote two stories at the time to kind of test myself. This was one of them. The other one right now, the name I'm kind of blanking on. And so that's where the kind of idea of the story came from. And then, you know, I just kind of threw in things that I was doing at the time. People kind of, I kind of met and knew at the time also. Uh, I kind of based characters upon them. So it's just a combination of many different things that the story kind of manifested from. I love it. I love it. I love that. Okay, so you were in New Orleans for a while and Atlanta. Those are two of my favorite cities in the United States. I'm like already jealous of you that you you know lived in both of those places. Um, have you lived anywhere else overseas or is Korea the first place overseas? No, I lived in Taiwan for two years. So really, okay, I, I've been in Korea for 12 years and then I was in Taiwan for two years. So altogether, 14 years in Asia. Awesome. Like, I think that that is just amazing. Like, I don't know that I would have the courage to like leave the country that I grew up in, um, especially one whose culture is so different from America. Like, I just, I don't know, I find it really admirable that you're able to just do that. And then you take it and you infuse it into your work. And like, I just, I love that about your work. And I'm like instantly curious about what else you have out there that you've written that you could share with us, you know, that we can go out and read or buy. And, you know, I know at the end, I'm going to ask you how we support you and all of that. But I want to know now, like, what else can we go <laughs> and read of yours? Right. And so I, I didn't get my first stories published until I actually came to Asia. And I think it was that combination of, you know, my background, you know, in New Orleans, because a lot of my stories have a lot of uh, religion to it. I went to Catholic school until I was 18 and I'm Baptist. I used to go to church like every Sunday until I was 18 years old. And so that, and then things I picked up in Atlanta, things I picked up in New York. Well, it wasn't until I came to Asia that the combination of that background and then this kind of Asian setting really kind of jumpstart my publishing. And so, yeah, I mean, I have currently two novellas and a novel through a press called Mocha Memoir Press. Uh, this is a uh, fantasy. And I have two horror novellas through a small little publisher in, I think it's in Kentucky. And then I have a lot of uh, short stories and poems and essays that are just widely available. So uh, and everything I've written, everything I've had published, at least, has all taken place in Asia. So that really has, I guess, I am just a black writer in Asia is basically why I am. And man, I just, I love that so much because, you know, I, I feel like... You know, when I started Nightlight, I really meant it when I said black writers from all over the world. And for the first like season or two, all we had were American, black American writers, you know, that were living in America and, you know, telling stories that were centered in America. And, you know, I really started to seek out black perspectives from outside 
of America and, you know, really tried to start getting, you know, like some African authors on the show, you know, some authors from the UK and eventually, you know, started to get some more diverse perspectives. And then your story comes in and I'm like, wow, I never even thought to like try to find a black writer that was living in Asia somewhere to get that. Like it just never occurred to me. And then like the story lands in my lap and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is, this is great because it shows that not only are black people themselves diverse in our experience, you know, even if you grow up in America, you know, like you did, you know, now living in Asia, like that's changed your writing. It's changed how you write things. And I I just really love that you take that, take your perspective as a black person living in Asia and put that into your stories. And I'm wondering, like, do you do that on purpose? Or is it just like, you're kind of, you know, just, you know, writing what you know, like, how much of that is intentional? Oh, it was extremely intentional. Uh, like the fantasy writing, like I've had a lot of questions about what way is about, but it really is. I mean, it's about several things, but it's about being black in a place like Korea because Korea is a very homogeneous, still a very homogeneous society, homogeneous country. So generally, I'm like the only black person around, and so you know, I I take my experiences of being kind of perpetually an outsider, basically, uh, and then there's a lot of you know, it's just the way it is. There's a lot of stereotypes that comes with being black. And so that's something else you have to constantly deal with. And that shows up. Uh, it definitely shows up in the fancy writing. It, I think it also shows up in the horror writing and then in the essays I, I've written, the poetry I've written. So it's, it definitely is something that I instill in everything I write here because you can't escape it. I mean, that's just the way it is. I mean, I don't go outside and suddenly I'm something else. I mean, no matter where I go, I am just black. So it is what it is. Yeah. Can you tell us just briefly about like what your experience is like being a black person in an Asian country? Uh, you know, it's a challenge. It's uh, like, like I was just saying before, there's absolutely nothing I do in which I don't garner like a definite large amount of attention. Like if I walk into a bus subway station, and I just, just morning I woke up and rode my bike and, you know, everyone looks, it's, that's the thing. It's almost like being a, a star, but you're not. But everywhere you go, people are constantly, <laughs> right. like people are constantly focused upon you. And it's, it's, uh, it's an interesting thing to experience for 14 years straight, just that level of, of being always in the spotlight. But it does make you significantly more, I think, mentally strong because it's just something that you have to be aware of, but you still have to do things. You have to, you know, I do like a martial arts here. I compete here. And so you just have to deal with it. <laughs> you just have to deal with it. And, it's uh, it's a challenge. It's definitely a challenge. Yeah, I mean, I can imagine so. Like, you know, me as a writer, I'm very much like a people watcher. You know, I'll go out, you know, by myself, you know, all the time to eat, to, you know, take walks, whatever. But I use that time by myself to kind of watch people to inform my writing and create these characters and create believable characters. And I'm really curious, like, you know, you being the center of attention, everybody kind of looking at you makes it a little bit harder for you to people watch. And, you know, I don't know, like, if you do that as a writer or, you know, if it's something that you used to and now you no longer do, like, has it affected how you write things now that you're kind of, you know, ev- everyone's eyes are on you and you can't just watch other people without being noticed? Well, I mean, also, uh, for the first five years, sir, I didn't speak any Korean. So most of the time I'm in silence. Like, I, I teach English here, yeah. but... Like most of the time, I'm actually just kind of in my head. I'm observing what's going around because I'm not really engaged in conversations. Yeah. And then it was only in my 
sixth, seventh, eighth year that I started studying Korean itself. And so I could pick up more of what's going on around me, like actually understand more of the conversations. But yeah, I mean, I really don't have a great deal of uh, conversations. Most of the time, I'm just looking around. Even when I'm sitting out with the people who I do the martial arts with or the people who I work with, generally, I am just, I'm watching and observing because the conversation that they have is way too fast for me. So I really can't do that much with that. So I'm generally, I'm just observing. Yeah, I bet that's really useful, though, in terms of picking up on really subtle body language that can be used in your stories. Because if you can't really truly understand what's being said, you have to rely a lot on mannerisms to get a sense of what's going on. Do you feel like it's made you write better characters, you know, being in a place where you're so isolated in a way? I do. You do have to rely a lot upon nonverbal communication. That That is definitely true. And so uh, I think it has helped me with characters. Like a lot of my characters are actually Korean. And so I observe them a lot when I'm out. Again, since I'm not really talking, I see what they're doing most of the time. And now I could pick up what they're saying also. But it also helps me with descriptions because when I go into a place, again, I'm just kind of sitting there. And so where everyone else might be engaged with the people around them, you know, I'm just looking at the small, minute things that's happening. Like at the tournament I went to yesterday, I was there for like maybe 10 hours and I had very little conversation. So the whole time I'm there, I'm just looking at the auditorium that we're in and the people walking around and what they're doing, how they're speaking and what they're eating. And so that's just like for 10 hours straight. I'm simply observing that small area. So yeah, I think it's helped a lot with descriptions and character. Yeah, I can imagine. So piggybacking on that a little bit, can you tell us a little about what your writing process looks like? Like, do you, you know, outline first or do you just sit down and, you know, bang out a story and then go through some revisions? Like, what does it look like? It's changed a lot because I, I kind of write across the spectrum. So like when I'm writing a, a poem, that tends to happen a little bit faster. Um, I don't really do a lot of revisions to the poetry. When I'm writing like a screenplay or a play, that's mostly dialogue. So that goes pretty fast too, because I don't have to describe so many things. Uh, it's just mostly just verbal communication. The thing that takes me longest to do, honestly, are the novels. The novels take a long time. Actually, the, the fiction takes a long time. Because I'm always trying to get things as correct as possible. And since I am writing, like I am not Korean, of course, but since I am writing about this culture, I want to make sure that I represent it as well as possible. So generally with the fiction, I tend to do one original page a day and then I kind of stop there. Uh, and that's really my process of the fiction. So it's much, I'm a much, much slower fiction writing writer, but much faster essay writer and then screenplay, play writer and then portrait writer. Yeah, yeah, that, that definitely makes sense. I mean, and I have that experience too, like when I'm writing, you know, like novel length works or novella length works, it takes forever. But you know, I can write a TV pilot in like three days. <laughs> you know, it's, I don't know, it's, it's very, very strange. But I found that, you know, for me, and I'm curious if this happens with you too, like, there's something about writing a screenplay that for me helps me focus more on the story and I don't get so bogged down in the words that I'm using to tell the story. And so I don't get in my way quite as much, I guess, would be the best way to describe that. Is that your experience with screenplays versus, you know, regular, you know, novel writing as well? Or is it a little bit different? I definitely get bogged down in the minutia of it. Like for me, playwriting is just so... It's just really a lot of fun because it's just this, uh, just the dialogue. The dialogue can be so free and explosive and, you know, it doesn't get bogged down by all this exposition and then all these descriptions and things like this. 
uh, I do focus a lot upon the story because I want to make sure, like I'm, anyway, I consider myself to be more of a genre writer more than anything. So plot's really important to me. So I definitely want my characters in the play or screenplay to have a beginning, something that they're working towards, and then have an end. And, you know, that's kind of wrapped up as it goes along. So yeah, I do focus a lot upon story, but then to a lot upon the dialogue and just how they're speaking to each other, how they're conveying their thoughts in a kind of an interesting and compelling way. Something that makes holds people's attention on the stage because I think that's really difficult sometimes to hold people's attention on the stage. So have you had plays produced then? Yeah, I had four plays produced in Taipei actually. Three on Christmas Eve wow. of last year. Christmas Day actually, Christmas Day, because you know Christmas isn't such a big deal for them <laughs> so it's actually christmas it was christmas is a christmas day and then uh before like maybe a month before that there was another play produced so yeah i've had uh about three or four produced in taipei now oh that's awesome so are these plays written in english or do you write them in korean now that you've been speaking korean you know i have a, I have a, a partner in uh, taipei that i met that was there he's just a guy from nigeria and actually he's married to a taiwanese woman and they have two kids and what they do is that I write the plays and he and I write the plays in, in English. And then someone translates them into Mandarin. And so when the plays are writing on the stage, in the background, there's the Mandarin translation of the plays. So, I mean, I don't do the Mandarin, of course, but it's basically written, it's written and translated for the Taiwanese audience. Right. And you said these were in Taipei. Like, I don't know what I was thinking when I was saying Korean. <laughs> I was realizing, like, wait a minute. Yeah, they're in Taipei, yeah. But that, that's amazing. That's amazing. So you've had plays produced and translated. Like, that's that's a dream for a lot of writers. Congratulations. No, thank you. It's a, it's a great experience. I really have fun being a part of that. So, yeah, it was really a great experience. Yeah. Were you able to, like, sit in and watch the play? You know, even though it's in Mandarin and you, you know, wouldn't understand. I really wanted to, but I had already moved back to Korea at the time. Like, this was uh, last year, so I was living here. And then right now, after COVID, the plane, plane tickets are so expensive that it would yeah. be too much. But I, I saw it. I mean, he recorded it for me and I saw it. But I was not able to actually sit there. Maybe another time. Uh, once it happens again, maybe another time. Yes. Fingers crossed, because I would I think that would be an amazing I mean, I would love to experience that like as a writer is, you know, seeing my work produced and watching people enjoy it. You know, I think that that would be a really amazing experience. So, yeah, I think so, too. Like, I really do hope. Uh, and then, you know, the it's always nice to one of the places actually like it's three different genres. One is comedy, one is romance and one is kind of a, a tragedy. But it's always, it would be fun to see how people react to each of these three different plays performed in one night to see if the emotions are being, because, you know, they're not going to lie to you. Like, either they laugh or they don't laugh. Right. Either they're yeah. kind of sad from what's happening or they don't feel sad. You I mean, you see it. So it would be an interesting thing to experience firsthand. That's awesome. So you talked about, you know, that you grew up religious, you know, you went to church every Sunday. And, you know, I'm wondering, you know, obviously wheels and deals, you know, angels are in this story, you know, I had a lot of, you know, religious component to this story. Was that a result of your religious upbringing, do you think? Or, you know, did something else kind of spark wanting to tell this story of this angel? No, that's just our religious upbringing. Again, I went to Catholic school until I was 18. And then my mom, like, I'm Baptist. And my mom would bring us to church like every Sunday, Baptist church. You know, those are like two or three hours long. And so, oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I grew up in the South, I know. <laughs> yeah, so I, I cannot escape the whole, uh, like a lot of my works are uh, have religious aspects to it. It's, it's inescapable. That definitely had a large impact upon it. 
Yeah, I mean, Catholic school and Baptist church every weekend, that's that's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> that's a lot of religion in 18 years of life. <laughs> and it, it all kind of stopped around 18, unfortunately. But yeah, it, it was quite a lot. Yeah, yeah. So would you say that you're still religious or, you know, have you kind of just like distanced yourself from that and just explore it in your work these days? Uh, you know, I... Uh, this is what other people are saying. I, I'll just repeat this. I'm probably more spiritual than religious. Uh, I don't really do. I don't really go to, well, I haven't been to church. I go to church, unfortunately, for weddings and funerals, but probably more spiritual more than anything. And that a lot of my work is, is about transformations. Like in this, in this story, people who are trying to, there's like a lot of darkness and then a lot of light. And then people trying to either lift themselves up to higher or actually bring themselves down because they do a lot of horror. So yeah, a lot of it is very spiritual, at least in my opinion. Yeah, more spiritual than anything. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, and I, I would agree. I would agree with that. I love, I love the take that you had on, you know, this particular angel and the merchant and, you know, all of that. And, you know, also you mentioned earlier that you wanted to end this story, not necessarily with violence, that you wanted to do something different. So, you know, maybe you can talk a little bit about, you know, one, why you wanted to end this story differently and, you know, how you chose these particular characters as the avenue to tell a story that didn't end with violence. You know, I didn't want to be like a, because I mean, I just thought it became kind of simplistic to have the story's always ending with either someone lives or they're killed by someone else. It just feels a little bit too simplistic. And so I wanted to do something that was simply more complicated and more subtle. And that's why for this story and this other story, again, which name I'm blanking on, it ends not with... I think I still think there is a violent story, actually. It is a dark story, but it's just not physically violent. Yeah. And uh, But these characters, I mean, these characters are based upon people. Actually, this is how my writing style tends to be. I tend to use people who I meet in real life as the building blocks of the characters and the place where I live as the settings. And uh, these characters, actually, just about all of them, are based upon actual people. And then I just kind of extrapolate from there. You know, as an expat, I'm always within that that system and so i've met people from all over the world like colombia and uh, ghana nigeria australia places in europe and so these characters are based upon actual people and i went to the klec at sogan university for three years so that's also based upon a, a real experience yeah i mean and, and it was obvious to me like even though i've never been there like the details that you included made me feel like this is what this place is actually like so you know i'm glad to say that i'm glad to hear you say that you you know actually went there and you did experience all of those things because it was so convincing that you know i would have been walking around telling people like oh yeah that totally exists because i read it in this story because it felt so real like you did such a good job of you know grounding that in real life i felt i will say really fast too that even though korea has changed it used to be quite risky driving around. It, that whole thing about the description of the cars and the buses, it, it used to, it's changed a lot over time. But yeah, it, it's, it was used to be very, there in Taiwan, it's, it's quite dangerous sometimes walking and driving in, in these countries. Interesting. I didn't know that, I didn't know that it was that bad, like, you know, just driving around. You know, I always, I guess, you know, I always assumed that, you know, most of the big cities and, you know, South Korea and, you know, Taiwan were, you know, relatively safe, you know, the same problem as say like New York City or Los Angeles, but, you know, it sounds like it was not that great <laughs> for a while, maybe. No, no, no. In Taiwan, they use mopeds, like uh, you have to see it to believe it. There's, there's mopeds everywhere. 
and like they're on the sidewalk and so when you're walking you have to be very careful on the sidewalk uh unless you might get hit so um it's, it's definitely not especially in taiwan taiwan's actually one of the least safe places for possessions in the world so yeah it, it's not again south korea is improving a lot just in case anybody from south korea listens to this <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's improving a lot no hate uh, mail it's not, like the, <laughs> it's not the way it was but yeah there's a lot of improvement going on that's amazing and like honestly like i could talk to you like i'm super interested in other cultures and how other parts of the world operate like i've never been out of the united states like ever i don't have a passport you know not because i don't want to but because like you have to have money to do all of those things and i don't have enough money <laughs> to do any of those things so i'm always super interested in hearing about other people's experiences on all sides of the world you know i like like the world's acute, but you know, you understand what I mean. But yeah, like I could talk about this forever, but this is a, you know, writing podcast. So I don't want the listeners to bail out on us. I'm curious though, you know, when you, when you talk about your writing process and how it's kind of different, depending on what it is that you're writing, did you just kind of, you know, like experiment over time and land on different writing processes that worked for different styles of writing for you or, you know, did you just kind of like know intuitively what was going to work? Like, how, how did how did getting your writing process down sort itself out? Yeah, it's a lot of experimentation. I mean, I have a bachelor's in English and a master's in writing. And then I I did a lot with the National Book Foundation. They used to run these summer camps. And I did that for like five years in my 20s. Uh, and then I belonged to a lot of um, writing groups. Over time, I belonged to a lot of writing groups online. And so mm -hmm. it really is a process of just continuously doing it. And then seeing what, what works and uh, doing more of that. And then the stuff that doesn't work, doing a lot less of that. And over time, just willing to uh, sharpen it, sharpening my narrative and the way I write until it's uh, something that people really enjoy. Yeah, well, like I said before, we were recording earlier, but for our listeners' benefit, we're recording this after Todd's story went live. And so people have had a chance to comment on the story. And, you know, there have been multiple people that have reached out to me on Twitter or Patreon just to say that they were so intrigued by this story and they want more from this world. They want more from, you know, this angel and merchant, these characters that you've created, like you, you've created a hunger <laughs> um, to explore that world a little bit more. And, you know, I'll be honest with you, like if you wrote a novel with those characters, like I would snap it up in a hurry because it's just it's so it's so unique the setting is unique the characters are unique and i think it's just really difficult these days to find to find writing that is so far outside of what we might consider quote unquote normal that it becomes intriguing to read just on its own and then you know in the hands of someone who is a really talented writer who can truly bring that to life i was just like i i love the story i was in awe when i first read it and you know, I was so scared that I wasn't going to do it justice, actually, <laughs> but like, it, I was really, really nervous about releasing this episode because it was such a good story and I wanted to make sure that I did it justice. So I was really glad to hear you say that, that you liked it. So <laughs> thank you for, thank you for saying that. Uh, thank you so much, actually. Thank you. And yeah. Do you plan on writing like a longer length work based on this story or do you already have one out there that I, I haven't found? Well, I mean, again, this is part of a, a larger world. So right now, this world has the two novellas out, the novel that I'm writing right now, and then maybe about four or five short stories. And so okay. this this is all part of uh, just a much larger body of work. Oh, that's awesome. I didn't realize that like all of 
the, the like the novellas and your other short stories were also set in the same sort of same sort of world. Yeah, it's all in the same narrative universe. Yeah. Oh, I'm so I'm so excited about that. I'm judging for the Shirley Jackson Awards now, and listeners can't see this, but Todd can because we're on video. He can see the stack of books. That's behind me. <laughs> like, I don't have any reading that I get to choose for the next month or two. But like the moment that I'm free again to choose what I want, I'm definitely getting those novellas, at least. So you could, what are the what's the name of the novellas? Like where where, you know, can we buy them from Amazon? Where can we buy them from? Right. You can buy them through Amazon, of course, and in many different places. So the, the first one is called Butchers, and the second one is called The Great Man of Smoking Shadows. And the one I'm writing right now is called A Soul a Day, and that's uh, about 75% done. Oh, that's a great title. That's a great title. I love that. Again, it's very religious. It's, it's a yeah. very religious book. I mean, honestly, though, like, I, you know, it's funny. Like, I never really would have considered that, like, religious fiction would be, like, something that I would be really interested in or, you know, like, you know, one of my, one of my favorite things, because I have such a problematic relationship with religion because of my own upbringing. But I'm coming to realize over the last few years that that work with a religious undertone really does speak to me in a way that a lot of others don't. So yeah, I, I, you definitely found a new fan in me. And I think that you found some new fans via the podcast episode as well. So I'm hoping, I'm really hoping to see more of your work out there very soon. I'm hoping that you're going to start making loads and loads of money from your writing because you absolutely deserve it. So before we call it done for the day, I always ask two questions of every author that we have on the show. Number one is what is a piece of black art that you would recommend uh, listeners consume, you know, something that, you know, maybe they haven't listened to or something that's just so great that even if they've already watched, listened, read before, they should do it again. Yeah. So I'm going to be a bit self-serving. My publisher, Mocha Memoir Press, is run by Nicole Gibbons, who is a Black woman. And she has been running this for several years now. And she publishes mainly Black authors uh, in genre fiction, which is actually not as popular as it really should be. And so I really want to give a shout out to her. I want them to read her book. She has numerous books out. Uh, she has published numerous books. And so definitely check out Mocha Memoir Press and, you know, pick up some black genre fiction. It's fantasy, it's science fiction, it's mystery, it's horror. It's also some romance. So it's just a, a wide range of, of things that people can read and enjoy. Uh, Mocha Memoir Press. <laughs> so check that out. Yes. And Nicole is great. Nicole, I, I love Nicole. Like I consider, I, I consider her a friend. We've done pretty much half of Black Magic Women <laughs> on Nightlight because I read, I read from the book, and then I'm like, oh, this is such a good story, and then I email her and you know see if it's available. You know, the sound rights are available to it. So, longtime listeners will definitely be familiar with Mocha Memoirs Press, even if they don't realize that they're familiar with Mocha Memoirs Press. So, yes, please please take Todd's advice and check out Mocha Memoirs Press because Nicole is an amazing human being who does amazing work, who's an amazing writer. And like, I don't know, I'm just, I'm really excited to see what else Mocha Memoirs puts out here in the future. I think that they're doing really good work in this space. So I 100% agree with you. And I'm so glad that you said it because it means I think more coming from you than it might from me. (laughs) You know, at this point, it's like, you know, kids never listen to their parents. They always listen to like other adults. Like you're the other adult in the room right now that's telling everybody to check out Mocha Memoirs Press. So on Nicole's behalf, I'm going to thank you for that as well, because I know that she's going to anyway. 
last question we have for you, since you were so generous with, you know, especially wanting to support other black writers and editors is tell us what we can do to support Todd Sullivan. What can we do to put more money in your pocket, get, you know, more eyeballs on your stories, whether they're performed on a stage or in a book? Well, definitely you could uh, subscribe to my YouTube channel. I have a YouTube channel. And so you can subscribe to that. And then I also have a, uh, last year, uh, I started a magazine called Samjoko Magazine. And it's in, in its maybe sixth issue. And so you can definitely check that out, Samjoko Magazine. And so those two things, if you really wanted to support me, you could do both of those things. Awesome. What's the URL for your YouTube channel? Uh, it's actually long. I don't have like a one of those. Uh, it's a long one. So I can uh, send you the link for it. It's one of those long yeah. ones. <laughs> yeah. Okay. We will put it in the show notes. So that way, everyone out there who is listening, if you're driving, please don't click on it while you're driving. But when you're done driving, make sure you click on those links. I will make sure that both of those links are in the show notes as well as links to Todd's novellas that are out and maybe a couple of short stories if you want to send me a couple of links to your favorite short stories so we can keep folks busy for a whole day or a weekend with your words. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Todd, for the story, for sending it to us, for joining me for this interview. Um, you know, like like it's early morning there. I'm not a morning person, but apparently Todd is more of a morning person. <laughs> so this actually worked out really well. It's late here, but early there. But thanks so much for for joining me from all the way across the world. This is amazing. I'm so glad that I got a chance to talk to you, and I'm so glad that you you sent your story in and that it's resonating with with so many people. And I wish you the best of luck. And I hope that you'll submit to us again so we can produce more of your stories. Thank you so much for having me today. The Fable and Folly Network, where fiction producers flourish.